0: I am Brian Sullivan and tonight a last call exclusive with media heavyweight Kevin Mayer on everything from the streaming wars to TikTok to Disney it is the interview you do not want to miss the chips of fate how Nvidia and Intel have taken wildly different paths we'll show you some numbers that'll blow your mind Jamie Dimon under oath the JP Morgan chief prepares for his deposition over the bank's ties to Jeffrey Epstein plus The House votes to overturn President Biden's student loan cancellation plan, but what you think you know about student loans may be wrong. We've got the digits and Mike Rowe is here with reaction. And the final countdown is on to this weekend's Indianapolis 500. And wait till you hear what this year's race cars are really running on. All that, much more over the next 59 minutes. So belly up or buckle up, last call is up right now. Hi, everybody. I'm Brian Sullivan. Good evening here. Good afternoon, as always, out west. Now, we are going to get to all those stories shortly. But first up, today, if at first you don't succeed, maybe try, try again, right? And after last night's rocky event, at least at the beginning with Ron DeSantis, Elon Musk taking another attempt at a big announcement via Twitter Spaces. But this one, not about politics. This one was with Ford Motor CEO Jim Farley. Which is pretty incredible if you think about it, given that Ford's Mustang Mach-E and the electric F-150 and other cars compete directly with Tesla. So why were the two together? Phil LeBeau knows,
1: and he joins us now. Phil. Brian, this is all about a new electric partnership, if you will, between Ford and Tesla. And it's really about charging and the charging network. Here's what was announced between Jim Farley and Elon Musk on the Twitter spaces late this afternoon. Ford EV owners will get access to Tesla superchargers in North America, about 12,000, a little over 12,000. That's about half of the Tesla superchargers in the U.S. and Canada the Ford second-generation EVs, the ones that are gonna start coming out around 2025, they will also have the Tesla protocol, the NACS charging standard. That's a big change for Ford there. Here is Farley and Musk talking about the decision to make a partnership of sorts.
2: This is a really, really big deal for for our customers. because opening, yeah, we have about ten thousand fast chargers now, but twelve thousand. We and we love, we love the locations, we love the reliability, your routing software, um, the ease of use of, of the connector, um, the reliability of it. The idea is that like we, we don't want the Tesla Supercharger
3: network to be like a Walt gar- a Walt Garden, you know. To we want it to be something that is supportive of um, electrification and and uh, sustainable. Transport
4: in general.
1: Look, if you are Ford, this is a smart move. Why? The Tesla supercharger network is clearly the leader when it comes to public charging. Yes, there are other networks that are out there, but they are riddled with complaints about A, they're hard to find in many cases, or B, a lot of the charging stations may not work as fast as they promise. They may not work at all. There are more than a few stories about people who are on long road trips and they're frustrated with the lack of public charging. <laughs> you don't hear those complaints quite to the same degree, Brian, about the Tesla supercharger network. Look, you, you can make a lot of criticisms ab- about Tesla. You cannot criticize the supercharger network when you compare it with everything else that is out there. So for Jim Farley, good on him to realize Look, these guys have built a better mouse trap. Why are we kicking ourselves or, or trying to reinvent the wheel here? Let's just go with them and give our people the option for a lot more ways to publicly charge.
0: I remember the road trip I did a year and a half ago from Vegas to San Francisco? I was it was miserable. To talk about all half the chargers I found didn't work. Phil, yep. I understand why Ford won. If I'm Ford, I'm feeling like I just won the lottery here. What I don't understand is why Tesla and
1: Musk would do it. What are What are they getting out of this? Ford's got to have a win. Remember, remember, they made an agreement with the Biden administration Ah. as part of the federal EV funding that they would open up their network. And they said, "Yeah, we'll open our network eventually. This is one way they can show that they're doing this. We might see other deals with other automakers. And at the end of the day, Brian, this is a great way for you to say we are the kings of the hill. And so, what if there's an F-150 Lightning charging up at a, at a Tesla supercharger location in the future? Those F-150 Lightning folks are going to have to look at a lot of Teslas around them. That's it. It is great exposure. And and look, if you're Elon Musk, this is a no-brainer deal. And and for Jim Farley, it's a smart move. But is it is it possible that this deal, to your point, Phil,
0: while being packaged as goodwill and a partnership, was if not forced,
1: nudged harshly? By the White House? I don't know if it was nudged by the White House. I think it's the reality of the situation. Look, you have two charging networks here, and I'm not going to get wonky on you. You've got Tesla Standard, NACS. Yeah. You've got the other automakers, all the other automakers with CCS. And it's a little bit like iCloud, and, VHS I- I-Cloud back in Android. The day. iCloud Android, right? Yeah, it's sim- very similar, very similar. And what Ford is saying here is, boy, these guys have a ton of chargers here. Why are we penalizing our people? We'll give them an adapter, and then they can use those. And in the future, you'll be able to use either one if you're a Ford owner. Phil LeBeau,
0: big story there for Ford. Stock popping a little bit, by the way, up about a half or six-tenths of 1%. I'm sure you'll do more on it tomorrow as well, Phil. Thank you very much. All right, let's dive further into this with us tonight. Mark Fields, former president and CEO of Ford, the CNBC contributor, and Gordon Johnson, founder and CEO of GLJ Research. Mark, you heard the conversation. I mean, this has got to be a huge win for Ford because the charging network is the gas station chain of the EV. And now you can just go to somebody else's chain.
3: Yeah, I mean, this is a, there's a lot of positives in this for Ford. I mean, the bottom line, Brian, is Ford has introduced a number of EV products into the marketplace. They have uh, more coming. And they're saying, listen, one of the biggest obstacles for consumers is charging stations. They want to feel comfortable that they can charge anywhere, just like you can fill up at a gas station today. So for Ford, they get more locations. And as 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 Phil just mentioned, you know, the, the existing charging non-Tesla network, it has real reliability problems. Uh, you know, chargers terri- being it's down. Terrible. It's awful It's working. awful.
0: I've done a number and, of road trips, it's terrible. I'll tweet out my yeah, exactly. segment again later on after the show.
3: So it just takes away one another one of the obstacles. So for, for Ford, I think this is a big win, and as, as Phil said, for Tesla, it reinforces them as the leader. They they get access to the RA, RA funding to uh, you know build out the charging network and get incentives from the government. Yeah. Listen, this gives them some kind of incremental revenue or profit because you know they're not doing this just to, just to be nice guys.
0: No, I, and that's what I'm. I, you heard my questions, Gordon. I was a little bit confused by because it's like Ford, <laughs> as big as it is, Tesla is. They're the big dogs in EVs. Of course, Ford's going to sell this as a win because they're, they're partnering up. But I, I do worry. The first thing I'm thinking of is if I'm a Tesla owner and I'm rolling up, you know, I-94 to Kenosha from Chicago and I go to the supercharger there and there's five Fords blocking me out and now I've got to wait, I'm going to be ticked off. Do they make any money off the charging? Because it is illegal to sell electricity. They just sell time, I believe.
5: Yeah, that's a great point, Brian. Thanks for having me. the The positives here for Tesla are clear. The positive are the positives are the taxpayer is funding this, but this isn't new. We knew that as part of them getting EV credits, they were going to have to open up their charging network. So this isn't the new. The negatives, though, and I know you're going to say, "Of course, you're going to say this," but far outweigh the positives. Let me explain. One of the key Hurdles for buying an EV car is range anxiety, range anxiety. And now that you can buy a Ford car and have access to Tesla's network, that literally gets rid of one of the only moats that Tesla had left. Keep in mind, Consumer Reports ranks Tesla's cars with respect to reliability near dead last. J.D. Power ranks them last in reliability. And what question mark The similar outfit in, 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 in the U.K. ranks their cars last? Other cars have better interior, equal or similar real-world range, and better serviceability. So the fact that Tesla, in our view, this is being forced by the U.S. government, is being forced to open up their um, supercharging network, I think is a negative. Because now you're going to be less inclined to buy that Tesla car, and you'll go buy that Mach-E, which better interior, similar, better range, et cetera. So I think this is overall a negative For Tesla. very good uh, for Ford. Listen,
0: you know, beauty's in the eye of the beholder. I will say it. I am not a fan of the Mach-E styling. I think it looks kind of like a, a Gremlin and a Kia had a, had a child. But uh, that said, do you think this will pop Ford's EV sales, to Gordon's point? Well, I think
3: on, on balance, it's a positive, right? Because you're, you're taking away, you know, one of the obstacles beyond just introducing the product. You know, the other obstacles for adoption of EV are cost, which is going to be solved over time. And then just cu- getting customers comfortable that they can charge whenever they wherever they want, uh, just like they fill up at the gas station today. So I think this is a net positive. Yeah. You know, to Gordon's point, I think, listen, if you're in a Cybertruck and you're waiting behind an F-150 or a Ford E-Transit, you know, that's not going to be good for you. But keep in mind, this announcement was only for 50 percent of the Tesla char- supercharging stations. And you know Tesla has a lot of data on those high-volume uh-huh. stations. So I'm sure they're keeping those you know, it won't, the be the, it
0: won't be the one-off I-94, right, in the Mars Cheese Castle in Kenosha. It's going to be like, oh, you can use our charging network in Pollock, <laughs> South Dakota, just under the North <laughs> Dakota border. They're, that one's wide open for you guys. Listen, we'll see how it goes. It's an interesting move. Uh, big win. I can't see it as, as a non-win for Ford. it It's got to be Mark Fields, Gordon Johnson. Guys, thank you both very much. couple quick programming notes, by the way. Stick around after last call tonight. If you did not catch David Faber's wide-ranging interview with Elon Musk, you're going to get a chance to see it again. We're going to air the whole thing 8 o'clock tonight. Really fantastic interview by David. Elon Musk, he did these long pauses. Very thoughtful, really interesting interview. All right. Tune into Squawk Box, by the way, tomorrow morning, because that guy that we just heard from, the CEO of Ford, will join Squawk 8 a.m. tomorrow. Up next. Oh, this show's not done yet. Up next, Twitter's new CEO may have a surprise up her sleeve. And the last call exclusive with former TikTok CEO Kevin Mayer is the time running out for TikTok in America. Stay with us. All right. Welcome back. It is time now for tomorrow's news tonight. And listen to this news that broke a short time ago. The New York Post reporting that new Twitter CEO Linda Yaccarino, who ran the ad business for our parent company, NBC Universal, until recently, of course, pushed our parent company to try to buy Twitter. Now, it was a while ago. Post reports courtship back began back in 2014. Nothing obviously occurred. But now Linda is CEO of Twitter and joining us now is the person who broke that story? And that is the New York Post. Lydia Moynihan, as soon as the story crossed, I yelled at, you know, Max, our EPS said, Max! Lydia broke a story on Lindy Acarino. It's a it's a, this is an interesting thing. Why would why would we, or the former we, NBC Universal, want
6: Twitter? Well, clearly the decision was that you actually didn't in the end, but it's interesting to note. So this was almost a decade ago, 2014. 2015. Just a short time thereafter, Disney actually looked at acquiring Twitter. I think that was around 2017. And they were very public about why they were interested in it. They felt like it would be a great distribution platform. And I think Linda felt very much the same way. And now we're seeing that is how Twitter's being used, right? Twitter Twitter's trying to at- attract personalities and talent to the platform. And I think that was Linda's vision at the time. Now, she actually created a formal presentation and presented that three separate times to executive leadership, pushing this acquisition. Now there just wasn't an appetite at the time. They didn't go so far as to retain bankers, but this was something that she really had a vision for almost a decade ago. So it's do we really know Lydia? Do we know so if it's, cool, we and now she's helming it?
0: Do we know if we, meaning NBC Universal slash Comcast, didn't want to buy Twitter or Twitter was not interested to be sold? Because if it's the latter, and now Lydia. Is this or Lydia? Oh, my God. Linda is this. Maybe you will be the CEO. Lydia, Linda, 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 Linda Carter. Marie. It's all Wonder Woman, whatever. If, if she is now the CEO, of course, Musk is the owner. Maybe things
6: change. Wait, what are you saying, Brian, that that now maybe there's going to be another NBCU partnership? If she
0: loved the deal when she was at NBC Universal, Now she's on the other side. Maybe you think there's a possibility she would try to make the sale from the other side.
6: Oh, that is way above my pay grade. Who knows? I mean, things had changed dramatically in that time. I think at the time, it was something that NBCU discussed internally. I also know that Twitter was shopping themselves, but I do not believe it went so far as for them to actually have conversations about what that would look like. But I think the point we really paint in the article is the fact that even though this happened really briefly, we understand it was a 24-48 period between when Musk offered her the job and she accepted it, she was Thinking about Twitter and figuring out ways that maybe there could be synergies between NBC, all news networks and and Twitter as well. So I think the point that they're you know, a lot of these folks are realizing is that she obviously is known for uh, her ad expertise and that's her background. And yet she also has done a lot more than that. Um, And again, has just been thinking about the potential that Twitter has for almost a decade.
0: Well, and knows, must know the numbers as well, and we'll see what she turns it into. It's going to be exciting to watch all these spaces, according to Musk, millions of people, whatever, lining up to join. We'll see. Lydia Moynihan, thank you for joining us. Read that story in the Post. Appreciate it, Lydia.
6: Great to see you, Brian. Thank all you. All right.
0: Also tomorrow, Jamie Dimon said to be deposed in the civil lawsuit against J.P. Morgan surrounding what the bank might or might not have known about the crimes of disgraced and dead financier Jeffrey Epstein. The U.S. Virgin Islands and one of Epstein's accusers are suing J.P. Morgan in a Manhattan district court, the bank denying all wrongdoing and stating that Diamond had no knowledge about Epstein, at least that was relevant to the lawsuit. So how high are these stakes for Diamond and J.P. Morgan? Joining us is CBC senior Washington correspondent Amir Javers covering this story closely and The Wall Street Journal's Emily Glazier, who most recently published the piece, on Epstein's entanglement with Bill Gates and his alleged affair with a Russian bridge player. Eamon, the stakes do seem to be growing for JPM around this Virgin Islands lawsuit.
7: Yeah, absolutely, Brian. I mean, this is going to be a big day for Jamie Dimon tomorrow. He's going to walk in there and he's going to be asked that famous question, what did you know and when did you know it? I I think what Jamie Dimon is going to say here is I didn't know any of this. Uh, I'd never approved the Epstein accounts inside the bank. In fact, I don't even approve accounts generally inside the bank. Uh, And J.P. Morgan didn't need Jeffrey Epstein to introduce us to all these billionaires, which is one of the allegations in the case. I think what Jamie Dimon might say here is, look, we're J.P. Morgan. We know billionaires. That's what we do for a living. We would never need a guy like Epstein to introduce us to a lot of people. I think that's the case that you're going to hear from J.P. Morgan tomorrow. We'll see uh, if that's how it all plays out. But J.P. Morgan, from their perspective, uh, is looking at this and saying, how is it that the U.S. Virgin Islands are suing us when, in fact, the U.S. Virgin Islands had a lot more information in real time about what Jeffrey Epstein was doing than we did, right? So I think there's some real frustration inside the bank about this, but it's going to be a big, high-stakes day for Jamie Dimon tomorrow, no doubt about it, Brian.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, of course, the J- you know, J.P. Morgan always saying, coming out with a statement saying that uh, that Dimon has no knowledge of Epstein as it pertains to the lawsuit. There's kind of that, that modifier at the end. You know, Emily, I looked at your story there and as well, and, you know, whatever ends up happening, maybe, maybe nothing will occur. It just feels like, when I read your stories and we listen to the podcast from uh, Vicky Ward, who we had on as well, and all the other tales, that it feels like there is more to come. I know it's asking editorialized a little bit, but in your journalistic sense, do you feel like we're kind of peeling back that onion?
8: I would say that a number of reporters have been writing about Jeffrey Epstein for years and his ties to different powerful men and women. And as the Wall Street Journal rolled out our series of stories a few weeks ago, uh, citing a lot of documents and emails and schedules, a lot of those people have had to walk back their initial statements. Bill Gates initially said, you know, I met with Jeffrey Epstein, but no women or girls were ever present. That's not true. Um, Mary Erdos, one of the top lieutenants of J.P. Morgan Chase for years, um, her spokespeople have said that she did not have ties to Epstein and it was only one meeting. That is also not true. I could go through more of those examples. So I can't say what will or will not happen with Diamond's deposition tomorrow. But in general, we are seeing a lot of powerful people having to uh, correct or have a different kind of statement when it comes to their ties to Jeffrey Epstein once it comes
0: out. From what I understand, again, if I have any of these facts wrong because these are serious things, there's a lot going on here, please correct me. I am not one of these anchors that won't be corrected if I'm wrong. But, you know, Bill Gates has basically said, well, I kind of knew Epstein. It was a charity thing around here, but we weren't friends. But uh, according to what I've read, I think in your piece, Gates flew on Epstein's plane. Now, I don't know a lot about Bill Gates, but I'm assuming that Bill Gates probably has one, if not multiple, private jets of his own. I might need a lift from somebody on a jet once in a while. It's either that or United, but not Gates. It does appear that, you know, oh, we had multiple dinners and I flew in his jet, but we weren't friends. That doesn't seem to jibe as much.
8: What we learned about Bill Gates um, and Jeffrey Epstein's ties is that they go way deeper. So like you said, Bill Gates did fly on one of Epstein's planes, Um, it was actually to Palm Beach years ago. Um, They also flew separately to Strasbourg to meet with a Nobel official. Um, You know, Gates's people have said that he met with him to discuss, um, you know, issues around polio and that he was not lobbying for a Nobel Peace Prize. Our reporting, you know, shows otherwise. Um, And there are a number of other meetings that Bill Gates had with Jeffrey Epstein that weren't previously known or, or discussed. So what we often see is that when people's feet are held to the fire and there are schedules and emails and documents saying, wait a minute, it looks like you met Jeffrey Epstein here or you communicated with him there. Is that true? We're seeing their responses change a little bit. And it'll be very interesting to see what Diamond says in the deposition tomorrow. We'll find out.
0: Yeah. What Do do you think, Eamon, that we're going to fight? yeah, I was going to say jump in. what, What can we maybe learn tomorrow?
7: Yeah. Well, look. First of all, I want to say I think it's important to say that the Wall Street Journal has absolutely been crushing it on this this story. Uh, their series on this. I mean, the bombshell uh, payload on that has been pretty epic. Uh, so I recommend everybody go back and read that if you want to learn sort of what we are uncovering and as we go along in this story, the Journal has has had it covered. Uh, we learned I didn't tell some him new to information that, just today, though, from <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, <laughs> he was not right, paid by the Wall Street Journal. It is true. I can no. It's as a reporter, you read these things and you're frustrated, right? Because they're killing it. Um, but look uh, we learned some new stuff today right I mean in this filing from JP Morgan today we learned some allegations about US Virgin Islands politicians and how Epstein sort of worked his way into those political circles as well kind of protecting himself on his private island uh, we, we learned allegations that uh, he paid for the school tuition of the governor and the first lady we learned that the first lady of the US Virgin Islands allegedly uh, was helping get visas for some of the women that Epstein was bringing to the island uh, we all also learned a lot more detail about how exactly Jeffrey Epstein worked with the Port Authority officials uh, in the U.S. Virgin Islands, who, of course, had access to the airports and controlled uh, when his jet could come in and not come in and all of that. So uh, you can see from J.P. Morgan's perspective, putting this document dump out today ahead of tomorrow, saying, look, uh, you know, these folks at the U.S. Virgin Islands were deeply enmeshed in this stuff. It certainly wasn't just up us so they're muddying up sort of both sides here
0: um, yeah amen and emily thank you by the way a guy that was a math teacher at a girls high school in manhattan got a mid-level job at bear stearns and then had a 50 million dollar townhouse shortly afterwards a lot of questions emily amen thank you all right coming up and get your motor running the head of the indianapolis motor speedway will join us to talk this weekend's massive indy 500 but first former tiktok CEO kevin Mayer is here exclusively we'll talk streaming his new Candle Media, Reese Witherspoon, the future of the app, and more. Stick around. All right, welcome back to Last Call. Thanks for joining us. Let's turn now to a topic we have been covering extensively here in this hour, and that is the big money business of streaming. Netflix, Hulu, Disney+, Peacock, and more. It's a huge industry, but it's also one that has struggled to make any money. And now the Wall Street Journal reporting that Hulu is at the center of ongoing talks between Disney and our parent company, Comcast. Comcast owns a big chunk of Hulu and reportedly would like to sell, but the two are struggling to find the right price. Any deal for it would give Disney complete ownership of Hulu and probably roll it into Disney Plus, my speculation. But CEO Bob Iger has said it's his hope to move toward one singular streaming platform that includes Hulu content as well. This coming is Warner Brothers rebranded HBO into Max. Paramount announcing it's merging its Paramount Plus with Showtime apps. It's all gotten very confusing. Where does it all go and how will your TV money end up looking? Joining us now, help answer these questions. Candle Media co-CEO, former TikTok CEO Kevin Mayer. Candle Media, the company behind shows like Daisy Jones and the Six. Fantastic show, by the way. Reese Witherspoon on the board As well, Kevin, also a former top Disney executive. Kevin, thank you for joining us.
9: A real pleasure. Brian, great to be here. Thanks for having me. You know, I I guess I'm
0: I'm getting old. I guess I have to. I always thought I was an early adopter, but now I look at my Apple TV screen or the Roku screen or whatever. Man, there's a lot of apps. It's starting to look like a a phone that's too crowded. How does this shake out?
9: Well, look, um, there's a number of apps because I think that's what serves consumers the best, and. you can think of apps a little bit like channels. I mean, by the end of the uh, you know when when cable and multi-channel television, satellite and cable uh, was that is most prominent. There are hundreds of channels uh, on those uh, on those services, and there still are today. So you can think about apps a little bit as uh, channel surfing, uh, if you will. But I do think it's going to consolidate. The big the big global apps will consolidate down to I don't know three to five of them. Um, the content will be exclusive, as it has been uh, since the beginning of pay television. And you'll be choosing your apps based on and your services based on which content appeals to you the most as a consumer. You think Hulu goes away? You think our
0: company, and I have no knowledge, by the way, that's way above my pay grade, that Comcast sells, Disney gets it, kills Hulu, rolls it into Disney+. Plus.
9: Well, uh, there's an agreement in place, as has uh, been widely reported, uh, where Comcast has the right uh, has the right to make Disney buy their uh, third stake, which I think is a little bit diluted from a third at this point, um, although I'm not sure. Uh, and Disney has the right to cause Comcast to sell it. Um, th- therefore, that uh, agreement that's in place makes it the most likely outcome that Disney will buy Comcast stake, but you never know for sure. Um, there's some industrial logic to Comcast owning Hulu. Um, Peacock has been doing decently well, but you can imagine a domestic service like like Hulu being part of the, uh, of the Comcast family uh, would make a lot of sense. It also makes sense for Disney to own it and to take that um, general entertainment content, uh, much of which is very high quality on on Hulu, and add it to the uh, Disney Plus ecosystem, either in one subscription or in still two subscriptions but served in one app experience. So I think uh, either way makes sense. Consumers will yeah. be served well. It'll be it'll, we'll have to see what happens there.
0: I'm a little tired to talk about Disney, but I want to I want to you might have heard about this Florida thing they are going on. Anyway, I want to ask you a different question. Bob Iger is back for like the third time. Um, I've got to imagine that, you know, his his half life is probably shorter. He wants to go sail on his boat or do whatever. If you were offered the CEO job at Disney, would you take it?
9: that's a very direct question. Look, I was at Disney for 27 years, and I have great things going on in my uh, professional life right now. Candle Media, which is a modern media company backed by Blackstone and Blackstone's limited partners, is doing really well. I feel like uh, I have a lot more to do here at Candle, and I'm also a a partner at Smash Capital, which is a growth equity fund. And I'm enjoying my life. I'm enjoying my professional career. Disney is very alluring. Um, They were to, uh, you know, I have no direct answer to that, um, actually. Well,
0: if you do get offered the job, let us know. I mean, since we we answered the question directly, why not? I I appreciate even the attempt at an answer. Uh, Thank you very much. Um, TikTok, obviously the former CEO of TikTok here in the United States, Kevin, Montana just outlawed the app. Uh, Is that an overreaction? Are we Is part of the government overreacting? Are we underreacting?
9: Well... Look, it's been I've been dealing, grappling with that issue for you know three years now since I uh, was CEO back in 2020. Uh, it's hard for me to believe that the threat is as extreme as um, as is made out to be by our, by our government agencies. But then again, they know what they're doing as well. Um, I think it's a great product. I think there's a lot of good that comes from TikTok. I think that um, a lot of the youth of you know the West spends a lot of time on TikTok. Much of it um, very enriching and and fun content. And I think that uh, banning it seems like a bit of an overreaction to me. And I think that there are probably other ways to do it. I know the team there. I know the new CEO, They're quality people. And I think they can be trusted to do the right thing uh, if given the opportunity.
0: Is it possible to separate the Chinese government from TikTok?
9: Well, from TikTok, I think it is. I think that Project Texas that you've heard so much about with Oracle is something that could be very helpful, as long as you segregate the data in a, in the right way and make sure that there is a board of oversight that is make that is ensuring that that data is stored and manipulated and accessed in the ways that is uh, that would be in agreement with the U.S. government and their security apparatus. I think it can be done. Certainly not easy, um, but a company as big and and uh, Capable as Oracle and uh, and TikTok and TikTok can come to some agreement that that actually makes sense. So I I think it is solvable. I think it just takes some um, takes a commitment to do so by both sides. And I think I think it can happen.
0: You know we we we, we like to think we know everything. I'm a news anchor, right? I mean, come on, I know everything. It's at least if I don't, if I don't know anything, I'll just say it with the conviction like I do anyway. We talk all the time about media. We talk all the time about streaming about apps. What's the media story that we should be watching that we're not? talking about, not just us here today, but I mean, in general, writer's strike, the severity of it, the possibility that that could go on forever. Is there something we're missing that we should be covering more?
9: Well, you know, the writer's strike is a real issue. And I think that um, there has to be a fair balance that's struck between the writers and the producers. And I'm on the, you know, I'm Candle Media as a producer. Uh, but I do think uh, in the new world and the new sort of ecosystem as it has evolved it's different than it was when when last an agreement was struck. So I think it's it's a legitimate um, issue that has to be wrestled to the ground. how will writers be compensated in this day and age uh, of streaming and uh, and box office being different than it was and even the television ecosystem being massively different. So I think uh, uh, an equitable agreement has to be reached and I think it will be reached. of course no strike goes on forever. This one included it's a bit uh, it's a bit frustrating that it's happening now um i think it'll be concluded in in, in due course i think maybe uh, the but directors been- build is up and maybe maybe that'll help a little bit but i think in response to your question a lot of people are talking about AI, um, and it's even made its way into part of this uh, Writers Guild um, issue that we're, that I just spoke about. But I think AI is a pretty big story uh, in terms of entertainment, generally speaking. TikTok itself relies on a very substantial and sophisticated AI algorithm to deliver that customized feed that every, every user of TikTok gets, for instance. And I think AI is, is touching upon and will impact Positively and negatively yeah. uh, our industry, this entertainment industry, uh pretty substantially in the next several years. I just I, I do something. I do worry
0: that I, I'm sure AI could probably write a serviceable script by itself, honestly, but I do worry that data will become so pervasive, it's like music, right? Music, there's one hit song, then all of a sudden there's 20 songs that sound like that song, or the singer sounds like that singer. We got, you know, Indiana Jones number twelve or whatever the number is. And I just wonder if AI will help will destroy that amazing creative juice that changes the game, that makes the new thing, right? Like a squid game probably would have never gotten done if AI was making the decisions.
9: Brian, that is an excellent point. AI cannot be a creative force on its own. I don't believe that is the case. I don't believe it will be the case. But using AI to fill in story details to help... You know, If there's a problem in a script somewhere, getting some ideas from AI could be helpful. Nothing replaces the human element in creativity, it never will. Creativity is uniquely human. I don't think you can ever get a computer or any machine, frankly, to, um, to think in that way, that holistically and have that general capability that, that we have creatively. Don't see it ever happening. Just augmenting what we do as humans, I think, is where AI will, will sit.
0: Yeah, I mean, if if AI was making the calls, I just feel like everything would sound the same. You would never get a King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you haven't listened to them, check out Magenta (laughs) Mountain their Australian band. Kevin Mayer, great conversation. Really appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Sure thing. Thank you. Anytime. All right, good. Well, we'll take you up on that. All right, still ahead. You hear a lot about how much the average borrower owes in student loans, the average. But that's a bit misleading. We'll give you some numbers you may not have heard And Mike Rowe will join us about the cost of, there he is, the cost of college, next. All right, welcome back. The battle over student loan debt escalating. President Biden wants to cancel billions in college debt. A lot of people support that. The GOP is wildly against it. A lot of people support that. So much so, the Republican-led House has passed a measure to try to block Biden's plan to do it, and the Supreme Court may ultimately be the decider anyway. So, who should be stuck with the tab? And by the way, is college, as we talked about last night, really worth it? With us further to talk about it is the CEO of Mike Rowe Works. His name, unsurprisingly, is Mike Rowe. It's amazing how you work for a foundation with your name. Mike, it's amazing.
4: What are the odds? That's statistically impossible. I mean, it was either this gig or like your last guest, I was going to run Disney. So I, I just decided would to go you, in this direction. W-
0: would you, if you were offered to tell, ask you the same question? Would you do it?
4: How hard could it
0: be? Yeah, sure. Why not? I Nowadays, got time
4: next Thursday through Tuesday, which is about as long as I'd last, probably.
0: Pays well, though. Pays well. Uh, how about this? So we got some data. We hear the average student loan debt is 37000 That's true. But if you know anything about math, averages are wildly misleading. If you look at the Federal Reserve data, actually, there's a very small percentage of borrowers, probably medical doctors and lawyers, you know, the the grad school, the professional school that have hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. Most borrowers either owe less than ten thousand dollars and most college graduates don't owe anything at all. How do we and that's stuff you don't hear very often, Mike, how do we resolve this fight? What's
4: the right thing to do? Look, I've one one guy with one opinion and, and and two flavors. The first is it's a moral problem, right? My foundation trains welders, steam fitters, pipe fitters, electricians, mechanics and so forth. I don't like asking them to pay for liberal arts degrees. They affirmatively went in another direction. They saved their money. They did everything right. And it just feels wrong on that level. But that's on a micro level, on a macro level. I'm actually very pro-college. I think our country needs a robust higher education system. I just think it's too expensive. And I don't, for the life of me, understand how forgiving billions of dollars in outstanding loans are going to encourage institutions with billions of dollars of endowments to lower their tuition. I just don't think it's going to work that way. So for those two reasons, um, I hope they block it.
0: Yeah, and I think, the, I think the moral hazard argument is twofold. Number one, if you are a borrower who borrowed to go to college and you've paid it off or you paid your kids off, and you maybe, or maybe your kid or you went to a quote, lesser school, right? In state, whatever, because you wanted to go to a better school, but it was just too expensive because you could pay it. There's that argument. And then to your point, sure. If I was a truck driver or a welder, right? And I want to open my own welding shop or buy my own Kenworth tractor. I'm borrowing hundreds of thousands of dollars. Where's my break?
4: No, we're not going to give you a break on the F-150 that was a critical tool in building the studio that you're sitting in right now, right? I mean, the same thing with this house. We A diploma is a tool. A truck is a tool. A jackhammer is a tool. We get to decide what we're going to forgive, what we're going to subsidize and not. But look, that's an issue for sure, and it's right in front of us. But it's all connected to other issues too, right? Like 9.5 million open jobs that don't require four-year degrees at the moment, but training instead, $1.7 trillion in outstanding student loans. I mean, look, no matter how you slice it, we're we're lending money we don't have to kids who are never going to be able to pay it back to train them for jobs that don't even exist anymore. So yeah, we can't just – I'll forgive it. You're forgiven. But – I'm not comfortable just paying it off. And
0: your foundation has given out more than $7 million, I believe, probably more than that, to folks that are trying to build these careers. And by the way, given the the tens of billions given out around America for things like HVAC to schools, I would imagine you could probably become a millionaire if you became an HVAC expert, Mike. You know what I mean?
4: Well, I got 1800 people who have gone through our program over the last 10 years a big chunk of them are making six figures in the skilled trades. Uh, we just launched a PR campaign. You'll be seeing their faces all over this coming year. We're giving away a million dollars every six months for work ethic scholarships, specifically for the skilled trades. Mm-hmm. So look, it, I I think there's a it, it's such a big problem that you've brought up. It's not just student debt, everything is connected. Next time I'm on, Walk it all the way back to the decision to take shop class out of high schools. That's when things started to unspool. Yeah. And that's when the unintended consequences really reared their ugly
0: it heads. It is. It is. Absolutely. Uh, the foundation is www. Uh, Mike, do I still have to say www? Microworks.com. I What year? <laughs> HTTP colon backslash backslash.
4: <laughs> Two slashes. Have, which, which way point? is the slash? Umlaut. Microworks.org. Oh, thank you, you. Got a million bucks for giving it away. Go get some.
0: Micro. Thank you. All right. Once we it's dial time. up our AOL modem, we'll go check out that site. All right. Can Ron DeSantis woo big business in his presidential bid? We're gonna hear from David Sachs next. All right. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis made his presidential candidacy official during last night's Twitter Spaces event. David Sachs hosted it. And the billionaire tech investor is emerging as a force in politics. We spoke with him today and asked if he felt the slow open of the Twitter Spaces impacted DeSantis's debut.
2: Once we got started, it worked perfectly. We, you know, as you mentioned, the the app crashed initially because we had over a million people banging down the door to try and get into a Twitter space, which is kind of unprecedented. For a you know presidential uh, uh, candidate's announcement, and but then you know once we kind of got going it started about fifteen minutes late, it, it all worked perfectly. The audio was perfect, and since then the the tape has gone viral and people can listen to it on Twitter. and There's something like over six and a half million uh, views already for uh, for his announcement in in one room. So. Yeah, the, all this media attention has done nothing but elevate the, uh, the 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 sort of the the room that we did, oh. and and I think that you know once we got started, he was very articulate, he was very crisp, he was very good on policy, and he was totally unflappable about the whole thing. You know, I think a lot of presidential candidates, if you know, if we had sort of a fifteen minutes of tech glitches, would have either been a little shown a hint of anger or maybe a trace of irritation or maybe been thrown off their game. There was none of that from him at all. Once we got going, he was in good spirits. Uh, He was, you know, seemed very happy about uh, being there. And I think it all worked out great. Yeah. And, you know, you know, and you've got purple, good government
0: kind of down the middle in some respects. And we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, Listen, whether you're a Democratic voter, a Republican voter or an independent who's going to change every election based on the candidate, I think it is important to hear from candidates. We've been a growing frustration of the White House press corps that we're not hearing as much. Would you welcome in anybody? Would you welcome President
2: Biden to do a Twitter spaces with you guys? Yeah, absolutely. And Elon said that at the, uh, at the end of the show, we basically extended an open invitation to any other presidential candidates who want to come on. So, yeah, absolutely. Uh, this is very much uh, the, the idea here is to create uh, a kind of a, a live town hall experience where uh, Twitter users get to interact with presidential candidates. And you get uh, just a whole different level of kind of intimacy and authenticity when everyone is together in one room like that. Uh, there's really nothing like it uh, through traditional media.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting, uh, certainly an interesting concept. And Elon tweeted out that, the you know, signups were booming. I know your business is not Twitter, but I'm sure you communicate mm-hmm. with Elon. Do you think that Twitter did add a, a big number of users from yesterday's event? People that realize, hey, maybe I should be on Twitter. I'm not,
2: but maybe I should be. The, the feed created, this was worldwide news. I mean, the feed, I've never seen the feed like it. I mean, I'm a longtime Twitter user. Uh, for something like 15 years. And I've just never seen the way that this went viral. So, I think all this attention has, at the end of the day, been nothing but good for uh, Twitter. And I think it's going to be good for the DeSantis campaign. I mean, look at all the attention this is getting, because we started 15 minutes late. I think there's sort of a hysterical reaction here on the part of traditional media, which wants to portray this somehow as as a disaster. But um, but I, I think that a lot of that is coming from a place of, of insecurity. I think there's a lot of people in traditional media who don't like the idea of Elon disremediating them. I don't think they like the idea of social media playing this kind of role in competition to what they historically have done. Uh, so a lot of this is sort of um, is sort of a, a tech backlash, but I think that the attention this yeah. is getting uh, is- um, well, President, show, President, Biden, it, President yeah. Biden
0: relaunched his campaign through a video. And he didn't have some big splashy event talking to the White House press corps as well. He did it, you know, using media, digital media, Mm -hmm. albeit in a different way. Obviously, you're helping you're helping Governor DeSantis here, uh, David. But I was reading a Puck article. Would you also support other candidates?
2: RFK Jr., for example? Yeah, I am supporting RFK Jr. I've um, we haven't done it yet, but I've agreed to host an event or, or fundraiser for him. So, yeah, I'm excited about his candidacy in the. Uh, Democratic Party lane, and I'm excited about uh, DeSantis and the Republican Party lane. And just more generally, I think that polling shows that more than two-thirds of Americans are not inspired by a repeat of the same choice that we had in 2020. In fact, I think something like two-thirds say that they're fatigued by that idea. So I think people want a different kind of choice. And yeah, I'd love to see a DeSantis-Kennedy matchup or uh, so, some part of that.
0: Last question there, David. Have you talked to Governor DeSantis to say, hey, maybe we need to cool it a little bit with this fight with Disney? It's, it doesn't
2: appear to be a, a, a win-win situation for anybody, but uh, what do I know? Well, I I asked him that. So, you know, in the, in the uh, Twitter space that we did, I asked him, has this uh, fight with Disney gone on for too long? After all, you did beat them on the parental rights bill. And what he said is, look, this is not fight that I chose. They're suing the state. I just think that all uh, corporations need to be treated equally. And Disney has special privileges in the state that go beyond what other theme parks like Universal are getting. So his view is... That everyone needs to be all these big corporations need to be treated the same, and the, the irony is the Republicans used to be attacked by the media for being kind of country club Republicans who were in the pocket of big business. Here you have a, a Republican who just wants to treat all big businesses the same, and he's being attacked by that in the media. So I think he made a, a, a salient response on that issue. All
0: right, thanks to David Sachs. All right, let's wrap with this. It is the best time of the year. No, not spring. It's the Indy Five Hundred this weekend, and this year. There's a new kind of energy behind it, literally. Mark Miles, head of Penske Entertainment, which owns the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Mark, great to chat with you. It's every year we talk, and, you know, it's the greatest live event I've ever seen, even as a racer myself. The speeds terrify me. It's unbelievable. And this year, we talk a lot about climate change. First year ever, 100% renewable fuel. But what makes it renewable? Because, you know, people are skeptical when they hear this stuff.
10: Well, it's real. And Brian, good to be with you again. Thanks for uh, having us on the show. Uh, our partners at Shell have developed this this race fuel. It is 100% renewable. It's the materials that it's made for that make it that. It's uh, like 60% uh, more environmentally friendly than any fuel we've ever had. So, And first time we've ever had anything of this this magnitude. So really good stuff. Shell's done a great job in making that possible for us.
0: Yeah, truly unbelievable. Now, I want to get to the race itself, because something else unbelievable happened, which is Graham Rahal, obviously one of the best drivers out there, just couldn't qualify. Uh, He was literally in tears. It was an unfortunate wreck. Let's hope Stefan Wilson gets better very quickly. Graham kind of comes in at a different thing. Were you behind that decision? How did that deal to get Graham in, even starting 33rd, happen?
10: No, we, we didn't engineer it, and frankly... I'm not sure we would have been audacious enough to write this script had we thought of it. But for uh, from, from uh, Graham's point of view, to get bumped out of the race was tragic. Really ripped him apart, I think. And then uh, 24 hours later, he's in the field through these difficult circumstances. So great thing. Lots going on behind that. You know, he has to move from his lifetime of racing with Honda to Chevy. But the two team owners put that together. And, you know, it, it's just a, a tremendous script.
0: Yeah, truly uh, unbelievable. And the speeds, I, I mean, I, when I went to the Indy 500, I've been to many car races. I've raced SCCA for 25 years, Mark. I couldn't, I was terrified how fast these guys are going. We have two that are in the 234s. Alex Pillow and Renus VK are over 234 on average speed. Is there, a, is there a period? Of course, Mark Donahue was almost that fast back in the 70s with 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 uh, with Roger. Is there a are we getting to a point where we just can't go any faster soon? Is this are we reaching the peak?
10: No, I don't think so. You know, the, the, we're the, the team owners, the engineers understand this car. They've had experience with this car for the few for a few years, and they just keep getting better and better. Uh, I, I think it continues to improve or to go faster incrementally. And yeah, the two, the thir- the numbers you quoted, Brian, you know, are a four lap average. These guys are hitting two hundred and forty miles an hour out on the track during qualifying. It's it's amazing that they can do that. And they'll be doing speeds under that, but like that during the race when they're three abreast, inches apart. It's it's just unbelievable. With, om-
0: with almost no rear wing. I mean, the drag coefficient on these cars has got to be almost nil. You know, listen, I was there the year Alonso came in, Fernando Alonso. He took the lead at one point. I think 400,000 people got up and screamed. Obviously, you've seen the success of Romain Grosjean, who will get, by the way, his first win pretty soon. I'm sure he keeps keeps notching these seconds. Are you getting a lot of interest from drivers, F1 drivers, current and former other drivers around the world who maybe don't want to run the full Indy season, but are interested in the 500?
10: Yeah, for both, both the 500 itself, but also the IndyCar season. You know, not every driver can compete at the front of the grid in Formula 1. And team owners and drivers... Who are great want to be here because it's more of a driver series. They can show their stuff and they can start the back of the grid and, and finish a race in the front. So it's very exciting to serious racers from all over the world.
0: And it feels like Mark, as a longtime viewer, that the the, the awful split between kart and Indy. I'm going deep in the weeds. Racing is finally healed. Like Indy's back to it's back better than ever. Right.
10: Yeah, every, every metric for fan, for audience is going up and up and up every year now for about eight years. And I don't even remember what you were talking yeah. about when you split. It's behind us.
0: Uh, what am I talking I don't even know what I'm talking about either. It just came out of nowhere. Mark Miles, thank you. By the way, we love the numbers going up because it's on NBC. Mark, thank you. By the way, check out the coverage. Starts streaming on Peacock at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Goes to NBC on 11 as well. The 107th Indianapolis 500. Don't even talk to me on Sunday. Literally 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. I'm out. All right. Quick check of the futures here. Quick. There we go. A little bit in the red. Thanks for watching, everybody. I'm off tomorrow. I'll see you on Tuesday. Have a great Memorial Day. Thank you, veterans.